Have you ever wondered what happens inside a caterpillar's cocoon? What about the defense mechanisms of butterflies? Or how a wasp can emerge from a butterfly's cocoon instead of the butterfly itself? Well, sit tight as the following episode is with Deanna Henderson, who along with her partner Alan run Mini Beast Wildlife and educate millions of people about the fascinating world of insects, mini beasts and creepy crawlies. Get your cup of tea ready as you're going to enjoy the following episode. Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? What about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following Wild Chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course, their habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following Wild Chats. Okay, Deanna, hello. Hello, how are you going today? Good, how are you? Thank you so much for coming on today's chat. I'm really excited about this No problems at all. I'm excited too. It's a really interesting topic. Yeah, this one is Finally, one that I feel is going to be answered of my curiosity because I've always wanted to know what happens inside of those cocoons or that transition from caterpillar to butterfly or bug. But first of all, before we get into that, I do need to interview you because you are the other half of Alan Henderson, <laughs> the better half, right? The better of half. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and you guys are from Mini Beast Wildlife. So we've had Alan on talking all about spiders and I also had a chat to him the other day as well about actually that conversation went far and wide. So today I thought I would get you on because I love what you guys do and what you stand for. But I want you to share with everyone the magic of what happens from caterpillar to butterfly or beetle and the magic inside of that transit. So, yeah, I don't know. Sure. Take away. <laughs> no worries. Well, first we'll start with the, the name of that transition process. So uh, it's called complete metamorphosis or holometaboly, which is a kind of a weird word, but it basically means that this group of animals, and it's mainly in the insects, in winged insects that they start off life looking much different to the adult form so we're talking about butterflies and moths that you know start off as an egg and then have a caterpillar phase or the larval phase then go into a, uh, a pupil phase and then emerges the adult um, and this also happens with beetles and with flies and ants and bees and wasps as well a few other groups as well but they're probably the most common <laughs> commonly known groups of animals that go through this process. So, yeah, the young start off life, they hatch out of an egg and they look completely different to the adult form and they uh, have a very different life history, I suppose, too. So the, the larval form usually feeds on a completely different thing than the, uh, the adult and that is really successful because it means that the adult and the young aren't competing for resources. 
So if we think about a, a butterfly, the caterpillars are feeding on leaves and their their whole life basically is just eating. So the very hungry caterpillar is quite true, maybe not in the amounts of food that it eats. Caterpillars can be quite fussy with their, their food plant preferences. And uh, then the adult butterfly feeds on nectar. So it's a completely different food group. And so they're not competing for resources, which is why they're so successful. So um, if we start off looking at the egg, so the egg is is laid, uh, if we're taking the example of butterflies, the egg is laid on or very close to the food plant of the caterpillar. So the adult butterfly will have uh, sensors on its feet that it can taste with and uh, it will be able to detect the correct food plant to lay the egg on. And butterflies tend to lay their eggs one at a time. There are a few groups that will lay them in clumps, but they tend to lay it one at a time because they want the best chance for their babies, I suppose. So if they lay them all at once, then there's going to be a lot of competition for that food plant. So they'll often slaughter around one particular plant, lay a few eggs. I can actually see one out the window right now laying eggs. But yeah, they'll, they'll lay an egg on a leaf, normally on the underside of a leaf or on the on a vine of the, the particular plant. Uh, and then they'll fly around and maybe lay a few other on the, few other eggs on the same bush before they move to another bush. And inside that egg is all of the genetic material that is required for every life stage of the butterfly. So everything is inside that little egg that it will need for its entire life in terms of its genetics. So the caterpillar will hatch out and Basically, their main goal is to eat as much as they can, as fast as they can. Obviously, being in a larval form, they don't have a lot of defense. There are a couple of butterflies that do have some smell defenses, an organ that we call the osmotarium, which protrudes from the back of their head when they're disturbed, and it can be red or orange in color and can look a bit scary, like a fork. And uh, yeah, it can release a smell as well that can smell like rotten fruit or something that's a little bit of a deterrent to potential predators. And caterpillars are also really good at camouflage. So they can blend in with their environment really well, either being green to blend in with the leaves, or there are some caterpillars that look like bird poo. So, you know, hopefully a bird is not going to look at it and think it's a tasty meal, but they'll leave it alone. So, and uh, as the caterpillar grows, it will shed its exoskeleton a few times. And that can change depending on the species. So some may shed their exoskeleton three times, some might change it five times or six times. So the exoskeleton basically is their outer covering, like like our skin, but they need to shed it to grow. It's uh, like they've got a hard outer covering on the outside, which is not necessarily hard. It could be a little bit soft, but it's, it's at a set size. And so they'll grow fill up that sack basically until it can't fit anymore and then they will shed off that exoskeleton, expand to the next size and then keep eating until it fills up that bag basically. So, And then when it gets to the stage where it's eaten as much as it can, there's no more stages to go through, it'll enter what we call the pre-pupil stage where it will stop feeding. There's hormones that are released that will tell it that, you know, this is this is the end of the line for the caterpillars. We're going to stop feeding now. We're going to find a place that we can form a chrysalis. So butterflies form a chrysalis, which is basically just an extension of itself. So it will shed its exoskeleton one last time and underneath is the chrysalis. Now butterflies do this. Moths tend to create a cocoon around themselves. So that can be either out of silk or they'll stitch some leaves together to protect themselves. 
But caterpillars are pretty good in that their chrysalis looks like its environment or it camouflages quite well in with its environment. So it can kind of, yeah, blend in and hopefully not be eaten by any predators like birds or, or even ants can kind of get in there and, you know, damage them or parasitic wasps and things like that. So their aim is to try and hide as much as possible. And yeah, then we get to the crux of what happens inside the chrysalis to form the adult butterfly. So at this stage, it's really difficult to tell what is happening inside there without dissecting a pupa or the chrysalis. And unfortunately, when we do this, there's no recovery for the pupa. So scientists have had to dissect chrysalises at different stages. So as soon as they're formed all the way up to just before they're about to emerge to try and see the differences in their development while this is happening. But recently, there have been some technological developments in that we can scan the pupa or the chrysalis with a micro CT scan and actually see what's going on inside the chrysalis, which is obviously much better for the emerging butterfly inside because it can stay alive. The outer case of the chrysalis is quite impervious to radiation, so they're able to scan the same chrysalis over a period of time and see the changes that are that are happening. So basically, if you did open a chrysalis, it would look like a lot of liquid that was inside there. So what happens is that when the chrysalis is formed, the caterpillar that was breaks down pretty much. So there's a lot of liquid inside there and it looks like a bit of a soupy mess, but really what it is is building blocks to form the next stage. So if you think about a Lego construction you know, you have something that's, you know, some kind of structure that's made out of Lego. And if you deconstruct that, then there's a building block that can reform something else. So while we can't necessarily see them with the naked eye, that's what's happening inside that, that soupy liquid. But the whole thing doesn't break down. So there are some systems that stay almost the same. And that is um, one of the, their breathing systems. So butterflies don't breathe the same way that we do through our mouth and nose. They breathe through holes in the sides of their body called spiracles. And the spiracles and the breathing system don't change very much from when they're a caterpillar to when they're an adult butterfly. So that system stays, it, it, it increases in size and there may be some rearrangement of it slightly, but pretty much that stays the same. And what happens is that the the digestive system, which is really, really important as a caterpillar and it's quite large, uh, the adult butterfly feeds on nectar. They don't need to feed quite as much as the caterpillar does, so that retracts in size and gets quite a bit smaller. So this is all happening within the soupy mess. So it is a bit of magic because we actually can't see what's happening, but there are also these, these things called imaginal discs, which are inside the caterpillar. And then they're only triggered into action once the caterpillar forms the pupa. And these imaginal discs form all the things that the adult will need. And they include the antenna, the legs, the eyes and the wings. And these are the building blocks that will form into those things as the adult develops inside. So, yeah, so the pupal stage, uh, you know, releases all these enzymes to break down the major parts and then pretty much put them all back together. And so there's a process of cell death and cell life happening. And the cell death provides the energy for the cell life to have that to be in as well. So, yeah, so it is really quite amazing. And you can see over time how 
yeah, these changes happen. There are some chrysalises that are see-through and you can actually see the development of the wings and things like the monarch butterfly. You can see quite a lot of what happens inside there at the later stages. Yeah, but it is pretty amazing and it's great that scientists have kind of developed this way of scanning them so they don't actually have to injure the caterpillar or the, the pupil case while it's developing, which is amazing. Yeah, that that alone, you know, technology, the advancement is now non-invasive for nature. Like that, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Far out. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff involved and, um, yeah, it's, I think it's just amazing we breed butterflies here and every time we have one emerge, it's just amazing to see. When the adult butterfly comes out, it's obviously quite crumpled because it's been inside this small space and um, its wings are really damp and not developed yet. So what happens is that the, when the adult butterfly emerges, they they sit still for a while and just let the the insect's blood, which is called hemolymph, pump through uh, the wings to get them into the full shape that they are. And uh, that takes probably about half an hour or so before the butterfly's wings dry out and it's able to fly away. That's amazing. So I was writing down so many notes as you're talking because this sort of stuff is like, it's magic. It really is. So I've got a couple of questions. I hope you don't mind me asking. No, that's fine. So going back to the eggs, yeah. Are there parasites or something that can actually attack the eggs or is there a time when the eggs are quite vulnerable and or does anything eat those particular eggs? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, every stage of the, the butterfly is open to parasitism. So uh, there are tiny wasps that will um, drill their ovipositor, which is the, the structure that they use for laying eggs, into these butterfly eggs and lay their eggs within the butterfly egg. So instead of a caterpillar hatching out of the egg, it could be a whole bunch of tiny wasps that emerge um, that have actually eaten all of the contents of the egg while they've been developing. And in the, you know, couple of weeks it takes for a caterpillar to hatch out, the wasp has had its entire lifespan in that, in that, apart from the adult stage. But yeah, it's gone through all of its own processes within that tiny egg. So, yeah, that's definitely a, something that can happen to the, the caterpillar eggs or the butterfly eggs. And then, yeah, as a caterpillar, there's, again, lots of uh, things that can um, happen. There are uh, parasitic flies that can lay their eggs onto the caterpillar or wasps, again, that will paralyse the caterpillar, take it back to their nest, like a, a mud door bird nest, and lay their egg on the caterpillar, seal itself, seal it inside its, its mud nest and um, when its egg hatches out then it's got a fresh meal to feed on. So there'll be caterpillars that are stuck inside a mud wasp's nest just sitting there not being able to move, not being able to eat but still staying alive in order to be eaten alive pretty much by the, uh, the parasitic wasp when it, when it hatches from its own egg. So that's like a horror story in itself. I can just, I feel so bad when I see a wasp carrying a caterpillar around. I mean, I know that it's part of nature and it, it has to happen for the wasp's life cycle to go through, but I just feel for those caterpillars that just can't move really, they're just paralyzed and they're just waiting there to be eaten. It's a horrible thought. But uh, those yeah. actually, as soon as you said that, it took me back to being a kid. We would see them on the side of our garage door and me and my brother used to open them up to see what they were. And the first time we did it, we found sp- like a spider in there. or But it was closed up like what you said. So I've never actually found, I mean, I've, I only did a couple of times as a kid, but we always used to find huntsman spiders, you know, well, dead or paralyzed or whatever. Yeah. 
So, yeah, that is a horror story, actually. <laughs> yeah, and there are lots of wasps that uh, parasitize lots of different things. So if, we, if we're looking at, at spiders, there are wasps that will paralyze a hunting spider and then chop all of its legs off and then just carry the main part of the spider away to its nest. So the spider has got no means of escape, but it's paralyzed anyway, and it's just the chunky, meaty bits of the spider that are left for the baby wasp to feed on or the larva wasp to feed on. So, yeah, we found nests with jumping spiders in it, like 20 jumping spiders in one and just one big fat larva that's just eating them all in turn. So, yes, it is the stuff that horror movies are made of, really. God, nature can be quite vicious, can't they? Yes, absolutely. Oh. And, um, yeah, there are even wasps that will, wasps and flies that will parasitise the caterpillar. And you won't really be able to see anything that's going wrong with the caterpillar. The caterpillar will keep behaving as normal. And then when the, the caterpillar forms the pupil case um, and the chrysalis, then, you know, after a week or so, instead of the adult butterfly emerging, you'll have four pupil cases emerge from chrysalis that you had no idea was there but just has been developing inside the caterpillar and the chrysalis, eating it from the inside out basically, and then you're just left with an empty uh, pupil sac that has no butterfly in there anymore. It's just been a home for the, the flies or the wasps to live in for a little while. Wow, that's amazing. Mm. There's mm. lots of magic that's gone there. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned about the caterpillar with the exoskeletons. I've never actually seen an exoskeleton of a caterpillar. So what happens with that? Where, yeah. yeah. So the when the caterpillar is ready to shed its exoskeleton, it will stop feeding for a day or two. And uh, it tends to look a bit hunchbacked and its head will kind of be tucked right underneath its body and it will just remain inactive for a day or so. And then along the back, the exoskeleton will split and the caterpillar will crawl out of it. Now, the reason that you probably haven't seen the exoskeleton before is that the caterpillar turns around and eats it again after it sheds. Now, the same happens with the egg, um, the empty egg case. When the caterpillar hatches out of its egg, its first meal is the egg shell itself. So it takes back in all those nutrients that helps it to keep developing and keep it strong before it starts feeding on the leaves that, that are around it. Yeah, and the caterpillars will eat their exoskeletons as well. And a lot of different invertebrates do that as well. So stick and leaf insects do the same. Once they molt their exoskeleton, they'll eat it again because it's a lot of uh, nutrients in there that they could really reuse for their own nutritional requirements. So, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Amazing. And while we're still on caterpillars, you mentioned spiracles. Is that how you say it? Spirit, spiracles. Yeah. yeah. Um, in regards to the butterfly, is it the same as the caterpillar? That's right, yes. So the caterpillars have got holes along the sides of their body that don't look like holes. They kind of look, if you look at one up close, it would look like just a little concave indent, I suppose, on the side of the caterpillar and each species would look slightly different. But, yeah, that's their way of air exchange. So air will go in through those holes and be transported around their body through the tracheal system. So, And that system is the one that stays pretty much the same from the caterpillar to the adult butterfly. Yeah, that's amazing. And is this the same process for uh, like lady beetles and other types of beetles? Like you know how we've got mealworms that – so is this very similar process? Like, But but however, when the mealworm goes into its little – what do you call the process? The pupa. The pupa. Is the yeah. same sort of process happening? Because sometimes you see the pupa moving though. So yeah. 
Yeah. And and butterfly chrysalis move as well. Okay. So if you were to tap one gently that you would see either a contraction happening or it wiggling at the, the rear end. And yeah, the same happens with, with beetle pupa that they'll move around in case they're disturbed. They want to try and defend themselves in the best way they can. And movement is the only thing that they can do at that stage. So moving might try and scare something off that might be trying to eat them. So, yeah, they just wriggle around as much as they can just to try and protect themselves against being eaten. So if they're able to do that, how long are they, like how long is it liquid inside? So the caterpillars in there, they've gone into the chrysalis. So, and then how long does it take for them to go liquidy and then stay liquidy to then form the other parts of have the cell death and then the cell life and all that? Sure. So generally, it's about two weeks that it takes for a pupil to go through that change before a adult butterfly will emerge. So it all happens very quickly. So probably for the first week is when you will probably find most of the, the soupiness liquid inside there. But the pupil are still able to move. There's still nerve endings inside there that will trigger the movement if they are disturbed. And pupas can also go into a diapause where if conditions aren't right, then even though generally they would emerge as an adult uh, after two weeks or so, but they can stop development and trigger themselves not to emerge. If, for example, you know, it's too cold outside, they've just got all these chemical sensors that will tell them whether the conditions are right for them to emerge. So generally we find that the, the cooler the temperature is, the longer this whole process takes and the warmer it is, the faster it is. So yeah, normally about, for say, uh, orchard butterfly, orchard swallowtail butterfly, yeah, during summertime, it would be about two weeks before they emerge as an adult butterfly once they form that chrysalis. But in wintertime, that can be, you know, four weeks, five weeks before they emerge as an adult butterfly. So the whole process does slow down with temperature as well. Yeah, yeah, right. So here in North Queensland, it's year round for our butterflies and moths. But is that the same with other parts of Australia? Does it still happen, but it just slows down or does it? That's stop? right. It, it does slow down, but it could stop altogether. So there might be a whole winter where, you know, there's, you don't see any butterflies and, and that's typical because butterflies need a, a particular temperature to be able to have the energy to use their wings and move that around. So they've got muscles in their body that control their wings. And if they're not warmed up, then they won't be able to fly properly. So that's why you'll often see butterflies just sunning themselves in a sunny spot in the mornings to warm up those flight muscles so that they're able to fly around. Yeah, and there are some species that will have very seasonal cycles as well and you won't see them for a few years before you see a whole heap of them again. So, yeah, the pupil stage could be in diapause for years before they emerge. Yeah, right. And is that the same with the bugs and beetles too? So they slow down that, that process? Is that why down south from North Queensland they can all grow fruit and veggies and not have bugs and beetles that totally attack their kale, which happens to me all year round? <laughs> That's right, yeah. So cooler temperatures have got it a little bit better when it comes to having to deal with pests, but I'm sure there are other pests that they have to deal with during winter that, that are not around during summer. So, yeah, insects being you know, the, the, probably the most successful group of animals on the planet have really evolved to deal with all sorts of different environments. And, yeah, there are definitely some insects that are around during winter that would cause problems to crops and things like that. 
even out of season. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Within my veggie garden, I've got the citrus, so I've got the lime and the lemon. So what is the butterfly? And I love watching the process that happens. I allow it all to happen. I think it's beautiful. And so what is the name of the particular butterflies at the moment in North Queensland that would be landing on my... Sure. So we have the um, the orchard swallowtail butterflies, which are the large black and white and red and blue butterflies. And they're the, the caterpillars that look like bird poo when they're a larval stage. And when... Actually, the, the caterpillars change colour as they grow as well. So they start off with a brown and white stripe that's quite dark and as they grow that gets a bit lighter, a lighter coloured brown with a white stripe. And then when it gets to the final instar, we call it, before it's so each stage of the caterpillar, every time they shed their exoskeleton, those stages are called instars. So uh, when it gets to the final instar before it bolts for the last time to form the chrysalis, it's actually green and brown and white. So it actually changes in colour and it's actually still the same species, just uh, as it molts it changes that colour. So it's a good indication that yeah, when you see a green and brown caterpillar of that species, you know that that's the last stage before it forms the pupa and, and creates that magic that happens within the chrysalis. A very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. Yeah, so because I've got all those stages happening all at once and I love it every day I go into I'm watering the garden and I'm watching it happen. Is it still dependent on the weather as to how fast the, uh, I was going to say, the caterpillar, <laughs> the caterpillar grows as well or is there like a set time for that particular orchard swallow tail one? Like yeah, that? so in the cooler temperatures, the whole process slows down. So the eggs take longer to hatch out. Mm. The caterpillar takes longer to reach each instar or each time that it molts. Right. And it's because, you know, they're just, their metabolic processes slow down with temperature. So the cooler it is, the slower they're going to be. It's just like us when we wake up on a cold morning. We don't really want to get going very fast. You know, we need to have a hot shower to kind of warm up and before we're ready for the day. So. Yeah, the caterpillars just slow everything down during winter when it's colder. Yeah, oh, cool. So I guess at the moment I, I love sitting in my garden every morning and I have a couple couple of cups of tea before I get started. <laughs> I'm starting to see a lot of butterflies around at the moment, which is really cool, and moths as well at mm. night time. So you said for that moths are more, is it silk and more of the using the silk to use with the leaf, create that cocoon. Is it the same process with the soupy liquid for moths as well? It is, yes. So every pupa has that soupy liquid stage pretty much. So whether it be a, a beetle or a fly or a wasp or it, it, yeah, the whole thing has to break down and rebuild itself to form the adult form, whichever that may be. So, yeah, but the, the moths tend to form, yeah, a cocoon. So... If you ever see a cocoon, it's not, definitely not a butterfly, which is where the Very Hungry Caterpillar book kind of got a little bit wrong because the caterpillar at the end emerged into a butterfly, which really it should have been a moth, but that's not a quibble about, about that point. It's a great children's book. I loved it when I was a kid. So, yeah, so moths tend to form yeah, a, a silk barrier between the pupa case and the outside world just for that little bit of extra protection. And it could be, you know, cocoon that they spin themselves out of silk 
or they might stitch leaves together or bark or bits of twigs as well. And there's also an, a moth that kind of creates its own net around its pupa case as well to kind of give it that bit of hard outer covering that you can still see through it and see the pupa and see what's going inside. I always get asked a lot of the questions of how long do butterflies live for? <laughs> because it, it varies, doesn't it? And same with moths. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And with butterflies, it can depend on how active the butterfly is. So it's a very fast flying butterfly that moves around a lot. For example, the Ulysses butterfly that we have here in far north Queensland, which is the iridescent blue butterfly, they are very fast flying. And because uh, that blue colour is very attractive and it is basically a bit of an attractant to things like birds, they'll catch a, a flash of blue and they'll be after it. So they are a very fast flying butterfly and as a result they don't live for very long. So they're only about you know two, three weeks potentially as an adult butterfly. And basically all an adult butterfly needs to do is to find a mate and reproduce. So that's its job. So it needs to get the energy to do that. So it's feeding on nectar and flowers. And yeah, then it's finding a mate and like laying eggs. So male butterflies basically just find a female, mate with her, and that's it. That's the end of their life. They don't have to continue on anymore. And then the females live slightly longer because they're the ones that are going around and laying the eggs. So, and then with, with some moths, there are some adult moths that don't have any mouth parts and don't feed at all. So all of their energy intake happens while it's a caterpillar. And during the pupil stage, no mouth parts are formed on particular species. And an example of that is in the Hercules moth that we have up here in far north Queensland. The adult moth is quite large. It can have a wingspan of, you know, over 30 centimetres. And yeah, it doesn't have any mouth parts at all. It has, you know, no need to feed at all because the caterpillars are quite large. Uh, they look like big fat green sausages. And yeah, all of their energy intake is done in the caterpillar stage. And then, um, yeah, the adult moth basically just flies around looking for a mate and doesn't feed at all. So as a result, it doesn't live for very long. So they only live for, uh, maybe the females might live for up to a week, but the males would only live for three or four days. Yeah, I've seen in all the years I've lived here in North Queensland, I've only ever seen two Hercules moths. And it was in my backyard just this year, actually, uh, one earlier this year. I think both of them were around about the gen January, if I remember correctly. I don't know. This year's been really big. <laughs> so, um, but otherwise, and there was a bee, there was a lot of people putting it, posting it up on Facebook in around the Red Lynch area here saying, wow, look at this. And it, it was like five or six people had noticed that there were some dead ones in the front yard of their houses. So yeah, right. yeah I've never come across it specifically that many. Yeah, we, we often um, go around our local post office because they've got lights on at night and uh, the moths often fly into the local post office and just sit there and or we get a call from the post office people saying, oh, we've got a big Hercules moth out here if you would like it. And, and yeah, they, you know, we'll, we'll collect it and if it's a female that may lay eggs for us and that's why we can, you know, raise the caterpillars and uh, see how that works. But yeah, the, the moth never lives for very long, unfortunately. They're such a big, impressive moth. And yeah, they do get predated on quite regularly by butcher birds and things like that around here because you know, they're always looking out for a big meal. And Hercules moth is a good one for them to have a snack on. 
Would you say they're the largest Australia or just? In Australia, they are. So what's the largest butterfly then? The largest butterfly is probably the Cairns birdwing butterfly. Yeah, so you've probably seen those up here. They're the, the females are black and white and red and yellow and the males have the green on them as well. So yeah, they're really quite impressive and we, we see them quite regularly around our garden up here in Coranda and yeah, it's just amazing to see the, the courtship between butterflies as well because, you know, the males do have to woo the female. The female will just not mate with any male that she sees. She needs to be impressed enough by him, which is why butterflies, uh, one of the reasons that butterflies have such uh, beautiful colours as well because, you know, they're trying to attract mates as well as trying to avoid predators. So, yeah, the, the female will be a little bit choosy about who she mates with. I'm so glad you said that. That's all. <laughs> I did not know. I oh, I love it. Well, we have to be true to the genetics to be right, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's some butterflies that will actually compete for females as well. So you might have seen the common egg fly butterflies, which the males have the white spots on their wings with some iridescent blue on the inside of those spots. They will compete for funny spots in the garden. So they will guard a funny spot and chase off any other butterfly. It doesn't matter what species it is anything that comes too close it'll fly after it and chase it away and then go back and land on its nice sunny spot so that the females can see them and say see how good a job that they're doing and go you know what you're uh you're pretty strong and i am impressed by your prowess i think i'll mate with you oh wow that's cool <laughs> that is cool i don't like to think butterflies uh aggressively you know uh, territorial because you just see butterflies so flying around and <laughs> that's know. right yeah and while they can't do any physical uh, harm to each other they can chase each other off so that's that's something that they will do yeah that's cool i didn't know that so something that popped up when you were talking earlier i'm not sure if you can explain this but dragonflies the and i don't know why it popped into my head but i'm really fascinated about that process of dragonflies so with the is it the pupa stage in the water? That's right. So the larval stage and the pupa stage is in the water. Their pupa stage is, oh, actually, maybe it's, I have to double check this because I'm not sure whether they are considered, whether it's considered a pupa stage or whether it's just a nymph. I'm pretty sure it's just a nymph. So they don't go into a dormant stage where they're not able to defend themselves very well. So I think it's a different style of, of life cycle there. That might be their hemimetabolistic method which is where the young supposedly look like miniature versions of the adult but just without the wings so instead of forming the pupa the nymph stage or the yeah, the young stage before it gets to an adult is what climbs out of the water and then it will molt into the the adult dragonfly with the wing mm. so it's it's a different yeah a different life cycle for those guys yeah i only remember that because you know we live in paradise and we get to go down to our beautiful creeks and streams and you know sometimes the kids are lifting up rocks and we might see the that happening there and it's like oh that's part of the dragonfly life cycle so that's yeah. really see and i to be honest i'd only kind of learnt that around about five years or so that the dragonflies actually started off in water yeah <laughs> so yeah it's yeah, really interesting it is and yeah dragonfly nymphs are called mud eyes actually and they're they're um they're used quite often in fishing because, you know, people use them as bait to catch fish in, um, you know, freshwater streams and things like that. But they're, uh, they're a predator as a nymph. So they're going around swimming through the water, uh, catching other little bugs to feed on. 
So yeah, they're a, a predator in their, their nymphal nymph stage and the adult dragonfly is also a predator. So we'll sit on a, a leaf and wait for something else that is flying past and it will chase after it and we'll catch it on the wing while in mid-flight and then take it back to a, a branch or a leaf to, to eat its meal. So yeah, I often thought the dragonfly could sting because they had these two little prongs at the back which are their Cersei actually and they're sensitive and, and um, you know not stings at all but yeah I was always afraid of dragonflies as a kid I thought it was going to sting me but yeah no they're not capable of stinging at all but they can bite if you do catch one yeah there you go so the big question or the big topic that goes around a lot is what what would happen to our world or what would happen to life without it? I mean a really scary concept yeah yeah, can you, can you, I don't know, tell us your thoughts. I mean, we, people say bees, like, you know, life without bees would be non-existent in five years. I think the, the topic was around at one stage. But what about insects in general? Yeah, I mean, insects in general form the, you know, I guess the base of the food chain for a lot of other animals. So if there were no insects, then a lot of, yeah, life couldn't exist because the reason why there are so many insects is because they do uh, get eaten by a lot of different animals. Mm-hmm. So they produce a lot of young and, you know, and not all survive, but a lot of them do, but then they go on to reproduce again. And they do form the building blocks, I suppose, for the rest of animal life on the planet and also plant life. Plants rely on a lot of insects as well for pollination to, for, you know, their seed dispersal and to be able to produce fruits and things like that. So yeah, bugs are a, integral part of our planet and without them nothing could survive very well absolutely and what about that that would be is it true or like the theory of life on earth may not be we, we may not be able to exist without bees as well within that five-year period i've been well, hearing there a lot. Are, yeah there are a lot of different insects and invertebrates that are pollinators as well but bees are very good at it because they've got that hairy body to uh, collect the pollen and they do visit flower to flower and they do distribute that pollen that help with, yeah, pollinating plants so that they can keep reproducing as well. So, yeah, while bees are, are definitely important, they're not the only animals or insects that pollinate plants. So, yeah, if we had no bees, there would definitely be a distinct difference and especially because bees are also kept commercially. So if they weren't, then... There would probably be less bees than, than there are currently now. So if bees did, yeah, get wiped out, I suppose it would, yeah, cause a, a lot of havoc within the agricultural industry. Yeah. It's a little bit, bit of a scary thought, isn't it? Like there's so many things that are coming up in regards to insects and then the soil and the bacteria in that. And it's this whole kind of, you know, David Attenborough's new film that, that's come out with his documentary. Like it's very much in our face at the moment and it's like we either need to make change like right now or who knows what the future is going to hold. And I mean, David Attenborough doing his latest documentary, he's in his 90s now, so he's been able to witness and see so much within the whole world, not just within one little area. So, yeah, I, I can only imagine how mind-blowing that has for him experience feel. But for us right now, I just feel like we're at this critical moment of choice. And if we don't make the right choice, it can, yeah. I think if you sit there and really think about it, it can be quite fearful because, you know, we've got children. We're like, oh my goodness, what's the world going to be like for our children to leave, leave 
And so insects, uh, I'm reading an amazing book on insects. I've read all your books. But I've got another one that I'm reading at the moment and I'm mind, like it's blowing my mind as to the adaptations and their importance, their roles and everything. And I had no idea. And, you know, obviously I being in wildlife for the last 20 years, I do not use around my home, in my yard, on myself, but definitely not outside. And I get excited when I'm seeing what's going on there. But there's so many people in our world that don't understand the roles and don't quite get that you know it's more about that fast pace oh, I just got to get rid of the weeds so I'm going to poison or I'm just going to get a good bunch of kale I don't want insects to eat the whole thing um, so instead of going out at night time and picking some of the bugs off they're using chemicals which isn't good for yourself but then like that full-on flow on of, for the animals that eat in the soil and everything else like oh. yeah and just hearing you talk it just gives me the chills to think about yeah, where our planet is headed, it is really quite scary. And that's one of our roles with Mini Beast Wildlife is to educate kids about the little bugs that, you know, the, the animals that people just see so often but don't really see. You know, you, you might know what an ant looks like from a distance, but do you know what that ant is capable of? Do you know what that ant's job is in, in our planet? And, yeah, so our job is to kind of create an appreciation for these animals so that you know people won't walk up to a spider and just kill it out of hand without thinking you know what actually am I killing here you know this spider is you know might be scary to me and I might be a bit fearful of it but it's actually helping to control the fly population or the cockroach population within my house you know there's a flow-on effect to everything that we do and yeah, using insecticides and things like that is a huge problem. And there are many companies and many scientists out there that are now looking at biocontrol. So instead of using insecticides, there's lots of research going into using other bugs to control pest bugs. So we've got a friend who's working on macadamia farms at the moment, and there's a particular caterpillar that just wreaks havoc on the, the macadamia plant. And so she's working on a parasitic wasp to release onto these plants to parasitize the caterpillars and, yes, yeah, stop that devastation from happening. So there's companies out there, there's a company called Bugs for Bugs that will sell retail to anybody who wants to control things in their own garden. They sell things like um, parasitic wasps or mites to to control other mites, predatory mites that will eat other mites, ladybugs that will eat aphids. So there are other options out there rather than using chemicals as, you know, an overall thing. And, you know, obviously taking things off hand by hand or, you know, one by one is very time consuming as well. But, yes, using bugs to actually help us to control other bugs is, you know, a really smart way to go forward. And the less we use chemicals in this world, the, the better it's going to be for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Again, a lot of questions get asked is what's the use of ants? What's the use of an elephant or what's the use of this like you know but what's the use of this? so we can ask the same question about ourselves so trying to live together without destroying it so much like the scary information coming out about our soil at the moment is mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing it's all from 
Um, I mean, there's a lot of things, but a lot of it is the chemicals that a lot of we are using in agriculture. So that's actually really exciting that you use bugs for bugs. And I'm, I'm going to look up at bugs to bugs. That's all. I think that's a, it'll probably help me instead of going out at nighttime and trying to pick off all the caterpillars off of my, my greens. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. No, there's always another option out there. And yeah, if you kind of think about the human population as a colony, so we'll often see this sort of thing happening in nature as well that a colony will get to a size where it just can't sustain itself anymore so we're thinking about an ant colony that has just kind of grown beyond its means and things like meat ants that will create these big pebble nests and then their nests are underground their colonies are underground but the, the workers will go out and search for food for um, their colonies and they can you know just search for kilometres before they'll find stuff. But if they run out of resources, then the whole colony just dies. You know, there's just there's nothing else that they can do. And if you think about humans as a sort of colony, we take up resources. We really need to focus on, yeah, and, you know, we're quite intelligent as a species. So we need to realise that our resources are finite. We, we can't keep plundering the earth for things that we need. So there's things that we need to do and innovations that we need to take so that we can continue to live on this planet. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be something that will take us all out. And COVID is a good example of that, you know, that the virus has come through our population. We've had no exposure to it before and it has, you know, had a huge impact on human life on the planet. And we are smart enough that we know how to deal with that. We've, you know, been isolating ourselves and um, you know, taking the normal precautions that we would about wearing masks and, and staying socially distant and things like that. So if we can do that in such a short amount of time for something that was very, very sudden and, you know, it hit us before we knew what was happening, we can see what we're doing to our planet and we really need to make steps now to make sure that we can continue to survive because there's going to come a time where something will come that we can't deal with as quickly and we just need to be ready for, for whatever it takes and we just need to yeah look to nature to help us with those things because yeah solar power wind power you know we can't keep plundering the earth for things that we need we need to look at more you know sustainable resources that will continue to help us survive as you know as we are now on the earth yeah perfect definitely absolutely and on that note, I now know what next conversation I would love to tackle you guys with, and that's ants. Okay. I'm so fascinated with ants, but I think we should leave it there because I, I feel that everything we've just said at the end there, I'm hoping has actually given our audiences something to really think about and to be curious with. And I think if you don't have that curiosity, then we're in a little bit of trouble because without it, then we don't, we won't research more. We won't find out more. We won't make the choices that need to be made. And um, I look forward to many more conversations. To be honest, Deanna, you and Alan, I follow you guys all the time and you guys inspire me so much, especially in regards to insect world. But everything you guys stand for in education, it's so important that we all of us within the same industry, we, you know, we collaborate to get that education out there because in the end, we actually have the same job. You know, we're out there to make an impact or to 
put the information out because we are the voice for nature and, and mother nature and animals and so forth. Education is so important because hopefully just from this conversation, even if it's one person who has gone away and had a bit of a think and over dinner they've created a conversation with their family or friends and and curiosity is sparked and then change is happening. And so together we can actually create a better world. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. No problems. I had a great time and um, yeah, looking forward to chatting to you again. Yeah, for sure. Ants. Ants is something I'm very interested in. All right, <laughs> Well, you have a beautiful time. It's perfect weather up here in North Queensland. Enjoy it before the wet season, although I love wet season. So um, yeah, enjoy this stunning weather we've got for the next four days without any rain. And I will catch up with you again another time. So thank you so much, Deanna. Thanks, Speak Katie. Bye. Bye. How amazing was that chat with Deanna Henderson from Mini Beaks Wildlife? I tell you what, my love for the insect world is growing day by day, and I believe I will get her back on and also Alan as we learn more and more about our world of insects. If you do want to reach out to them, you can find them at minibeastwildlife.com.au. I will put the link in the podcast notes there for you. But also, what are you going to do this week to create a small change at home or in your day-to-day life to help our creepy crawlies, mini beasts and insects do the job that they need to do for our survival? I hope you have a wonderful week, guys. Please connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, or visit our website, www.australianwildlifeeducation.com. Take care.